Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Oh, who else? McDonald! Welcome or welcome back. This is episode 82 of Americans Watching the Footy. This is our round two recap. I am Benjamin Castle here in South San Francisco, California, alongside my brother Ethan. Yes, I am Ethan Castle. I am in South San Francisco, California. Message brought to you by the Department of Redundancy Department and the Ad Council. Wouldn't it be the Ad Council for ads? Good point. I can tell you straight away, there are certain games on which we'll be spending a lot of time and somewhere we might just be listing stats and getting them over with immediately. A very kind of polarizing round two in that respect. Uh, there were a couple games where you could tune out really quickly, and others that were gripping enough that they probably retained viewership the whole way, even from the losing team. Yeah, there were a couple of games that were super fun to watch, a couple pleasantly surprising entertaining games, and then couple that you knew would suck that sucked, and a couple were like, I shaved my balls for this? I believe you sent me that once during this round. I probably did. I, I use it a lot. It's a good reference. Do you regret shaving your balls for Carlton and Geelong? No. Yes, that's a transition, people. So, look, I, I was expecting Geelong to have a tough time and not be able to win by more than two goals if they managed to get over the line in this one. I said in the round preview that their one-on-one matchups against Harry Mackay and Charlie Curnow would be tested early and often, and, well, Charlie really answered in terms of goal-kicking. Mackay did more of his midfield marking again, which I like. What I didn't expect was for Cam Guthrie to spend basically the entire game shitting down his leg. Yeah, he really doesn't look like he belongs in... The middle six right now, he looked more composed and was a more meaningful contributor in the fourth quarter once they moved him to halfback. So maybe moving him back there, allowing Jack Bose to get more midfield time is the solution, though. Stay away from set shots, please, Jack. But yeah, this was this was not fun for a pretty significant stretch of the game. Um, Geelong led 28-19 in the second and then fell into a 44-30 hole, giving up a couple of Charlie Curnow goals, and it's worth noting, Curnow's five-goal performance, the first five-goal performance anyone has had <laughs> against the Cats since round two of last year, Isaac Heaney. In fact, nobody had even kicked four on him since Easter Monday last year. That was Dylan Moore, and it's just very clear how much they're missing, not just Tom Stewart, but Jack Henry, Mitch Duncan... Jade Kolajashny, it's really piled up. And the thing is, the great defensive play masked what was never a great midfield. And with Guthrie playing like this is a 
bad midfield. And some of the holes that are left, like, for example, Duncan in particular, means that Isaac Smith has to play further back, although maybe now moving Guffrey back could allow Smith to play further forward. Cooper White came into the midfield as a sub in the fourth, and I'm really not sure what his contributions were there. It was a tough spot to be in for a debut. It was not the right role for him, as it turned out. So that's 0 for 2 on subs so far. Elsewhere on the ground, Esava Radigolea was under pressure from important one-on-one matchups a lot, and my criticism of him and his tendency to give away free kicks came back to bite him and the Cats once again. A couple really important free kicks that he gave away in the second half, whether or not they directly led to goals, they had enough of an impact to help sway the outcome of this game in Carlton's favor. If he can clean that up, he could be exceptional, and it's just frustrating that he wasn't into this set role sooner where he was kind of, he didn't really have a home in the lineup. I think once he gets Tom Stewart back in there, or even just Jack Henry, but especially when he gets Stewart back in there, he's going to look a lot better because he's going to be on the less difficult assignment. He's not going to be dealing with the Harry Mackays because he's a bright spot. He is not amazing yet, but you can see the potential and you can see why it's worth sticking with him through some of the headaches. Looking further toward Geelong's forward 50, I, n- I noted that in the third quarter, I think it was, I tweeted out that I could probably count on one hand how many times Geelong had kicked to a numbers advantage in their forward 50, and that was a real structural issue that I hadn't really noticed for them before, maybe just because their connections had been smoother and they hadn't been under the pump as much defensively. I think you're really right, Ethan, in saying that how strong their defense was kind of masked some of the issues with a midfield that maybe wasn't as deep at times. I think the not getting the numbers forward, you know, it's a combination of Tom Hawkins maybe not being 100%, Isaac Smith having to play further back, um, a midfield that's just, you know, you've had the defenders behind the eight ball, the defenders haven't been able to push up. In fact, how many times throughout this game did you see either Zach Tui having to migrate into the forward 50 or Jeremy Cameron having to migrate into the back 50? And it was to the point where basically the team had been so out of whack that they got flipped around and... As much as Jeremy Cameron can do at every position, that's just, that's not going to win you games. Speaking of both those players, firstly, I'm not sure that Tui actually passed that concussion test properly, or if that was administered properly to him, because he did not look right in much of the game after he got that head knock. Tui actually only gave up three turnovers, but it just seemed like he was on the wrong end of play more often than not. Cameron Guthrie did have have a game high in turnovers with Ted, and Jeremy Cameron had eight, but that was a product of just him having the ball so much, and he made good on his goal kicking. Jeremy Cameron put together a Brownlow-worthy performance. He pretty much put the team on his back, Greg Jennings style. I put the team on my fucking back, though. He finished with six goals behind, 25 disposals, eight marks, 592 meters gained, and basically had to play all over the ground and did so brilliantly. And he was one of the reasons the Cats got back into this game after getting down by 28. His fourth and fifth goals brought it back to a 10-point margin in the first couple minutes of the fourth quarter. A few minutes later on his next scoring chance, though, Mitch McGovern made what I thought at the time was the game-defining play, and in hindsight, probably was. 
Um, he did just enough on a tackle to force Cameron's dribbler to be behind to the right side. That kept it at a 10-point margin with 14.05 remaining. And even though the Cats did end up getting closer in the final minutes, I never felt like the game was really theirs to grab after that. That was the chance to get within a single goal. Final score, by the way, was Carlton 13-12-90 to Geelong 12-10-82. It didn't really feel like an eight-point margin. It felt more like 20 to me, though. It didn't to me. It felt like about a two-goal margin because, I don't know, maybe it's just because I was thinking so much of the self-inflicted wounds for Geelong. But there were enough stretches in that game where things were interesting enough that I would absolutely say that... You know, it had me sitting forward in the final minutes. What was frustrating was Brian had a really nice game, but a couple of his kicks into the forward 50 during the fourth quarter got intercepted, where basically it, the whole fourth quarter was just the Cats had put themselves in too big of a hole to dig themselves out of. And there are a lot of culprits. I've got a lot of questions about positioning and coaching. Reese Stanley trying to play back to assist Radagalea instead of Mark Blitzovs, who you can definitely trust in those battles. I, I was wondering why Blitzovs hadn't been dropped back into, into the defensive 50 to start the second half, if not earlier. Tanner Broom playing on a wing and Max Holmes playing up the middle. It seems like a pretty obvious switch. And I remember you also talking about how you thought Brad Close and Brian Myers kind of switched roles accidentally, and that needs to be rectified. Close was playing way too far forward, especially with the midfield struggling, and if you want to get kicks to advantage in the forward 50, having a super fast midfielder like Close will do that, so I wouldn't line him up as far forward, and just, it's a frustrating loss because this felt like a pretty winnable game. On the positive side for Carlton, Blake Akers definitely had a bounce back game, was much more functional, much cleaner with the ball in hand. He still had a better game against Geelong last year, but that's not a knockout in his performance. He was just otherworldly when they played when the Cats played Friel last year. Akers had 26 disposals at 89% efficiency, along with 11 marks and 485 meters gained. I was a very appreciative fantasy owner of Akers for his 107-point haul. Also, Ed Kernow, super functional game all over the ground. Had the goal that got everybody really pumped for him, but also eight tackles, which led the way for Carlton. And his pressure ended up being really important as the game continued to build. Carlton got just one goal in the fourth quarter, but it was Matthew Kennedy finding Matthew Owies about halfway through the quarter. It was great play by Kennedy, who had very little time to get rid of it. And he demonstrated a lot of precision and field vision in that moment. At what point did you really see the game as being over? Was it that McGovern play, though? No, that was a big one, but it was the the always goal that got it back to three. And then yeah, they got it back down with 4.51 left to eight, and you thought, all right, here we go. We still have a chance. Didn't with that horrible Bows miss a couple minutes earlier. This is Carlton, after all. But then... You had a bad miss by Rowan that Tom DeConing intercepted, and then Tanner Brune makes a great move to free the ball up, but can't hit Stengel in the forward 50. Should also note that Stengel got called for for a 50-meter penalty after that DeConing intercept as well. That was big just from a taking-time standpoint, because it's like, all right, taking time and taking ground. Even if you get the ball back very quickly, you're going to have to work those 50 meters back. 
Um, Stengel did finally make a couple of nice plays in the third quarter after I had asked, like, where the fuck has he been? He had a really great move past McGovern with a party trick bounce that kind of went over McGovern, and then that set up an Ollie Henry goal, and he also had a handball to Brad Close for a goal as part of the momentum shifted in the third quarter. But here's the thing about being 0-2. When I look at this team, my issue isn't, oh, they're going to have to make up this ground in the ladder. They've got tons of time to do that. They lost to two quality teams. The Collinwood loss looks a lot better now, as we'll talk about in a bit. My issue is that now that they're 0-2, unlike last year where they got off to a decent start in the standings and then were able to kind of manipulate rest schedules, it's going to be a lot tougher to do that. Having said that, I think five of their next six games, well, I think four of their next six at least, should be more forgiving, especially these next three Gold Coast, Hawthorne, and West Coast in order. I still don't feel amazing about any of those three because the Suns can't be this bad again, I think. They were better this round until late. Hawthorne's played the Cats tough the last few years. Trust the Cats against the Eagles. I should, but it's at a neutral site. If it was at Cardinia, I'd feel great. But yeah, I mean, we already, we talked in our Home and Away preview about how the later part of their schedule is a whole lot tougher. And the problem is, without beating up on these early teams, you don't have that sort of flexibility to be able to manage players as easily later on. Yeah, it's like, you know, say when you go to play at Sydney in a few weeks or at Brisbane, it's like, do we just kind of expect this one to be a loss and sit an older guy like Hawkins or Dangerfield for this game? Do you... You know, sit them against teams like North, maybe the Bobbers, assuming they come down to earth. I do see a couple of convenient games will be opportunities to rest guys, like playing GWS in between Frio and the Dogs, playing, well, at the moment, North looks tougher, but playing them in between Sydney and Essendon. Just don't get too far ahead of yourself there, but definitely questions Chris Scott will have to answer. And it's just... I think there's already a general sense around the fan base that it's going to be damn hard to go back to back. I still think this is a final team. This is a solid team that could even find their way into the top four. But this really does not look like a flag team right now, even when you account for what they're missing, just because the midfield looks really, really rough. I do want to say a couple things about Carlton real quick before we get into stats and wrap this one up. I thought Adam Assad played a great game other than one really bad turnover his numbers had him for like what like the official stats had him for maybe nine turnovers or something but he had the ball a lot i think they had him for eight but yeah he did have the ball a lot was carlton's leading possession getter with 29 10 intercepts seven marks and gained 608 meters he also had the magnet to the ball that activated every single time cam guthrie kicked anything and Jesse Mothlock didn't have particularly big stats, but his speed freed up so much for other forwards where even if it didn't register like as a score involvement for him, he was only Lissa's having five of them, but you could see just like having him create havoc and open up stuff for other guys made him a very useful player. And I'm just very high on him. He is a fun young player who's going to have a lot of success. Other notable stat lines for Carlton, Patrick Cripps had 27 disposals, Matthew Kennedy a behind in 26, 
Chera behind in 29. Of course, Charlie Curnow had the five goals. He kicked 5-2 off nine marks. Carlton were 56.3% effective on disposals inside 50, which is pretty damn good, all things considered. And they were plus 41 in marks, 110 to 69. Now, more marks doesn't always mean success, but in this case, it, it meant they were able to find those last connections a lot more than Geelong could. They were making those connections because they had numbers to advantage pretty much all over the ground because they were the faster team. It's not that like Geelong dropping easy marks. It's that there were numbers advantages to find open men pretty much at any time. And honestly, it's a miracle when you consider that, that they scored 82. Again, pretty much all of that is Jeremy Cameron. About half of it, it hurt to see his face at the end of that game because he played the game of his life. He left it all out there again, and he didn't have shit to show for it. He shaved his balls for that. He may as well have given up one of his balls for that. He was, fuck, he was good. Looking through the other Geelong stats, Cam Guthrie did have 25 disposals and 531 meters game, but 10 turnovers. He was bad. He was less bad in the fourth quarter, but he was bad. Max Holmes, 23 disposals, but needs to be in a wing role where he can really utilize the speed more. Isaac Smith, 23 disposals. I'd love for him to be able to play further forward, and I think that's something that can benefit. You know, basically, you just swap him and Guthrie around. Patrick Dangerfield seems like he's been quiet these couple weeks, but still 22 disposals, 8 clearances, and 8 tackles. Jack Bowes, a behind 20 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 1 awful kick. Grian... Two behinds, not like he had any egregious miss. 18 disposals and three goal assists. He had one ridiculous kick to find Ollie Henry in the second quarter, where it was like, he knew with his kicking style, his unique kicking style, that he could get it through and kind of like carve out this sort of curve shape to hit the open man, because that angle isn't there for a more conventional kick. By the way, I've been listening. I haven't finished it yet, but been listening to the Hoop Show's discussion with Brian from during the preseason. Really fun conversation, learning more about his background as a player. Highly recommend that. It's on YouTube if you're struggling to find it. Definitely worth your time. By the way, it's not impossible for Carlton to get to 6 one At CWS, at North, at Adelaide, and that truly is at Adelaide for the Gather Round Saints, which, I mean, they're technically the home team, but it's at Marvel. It's pretty much a neutral game, although I'm sure they'll have the larger turnout in the crowd. And then they go to Perth round seven. But that's for the Eagles, not the Dockers. Yeah. And then it gets a lot tougher, but yes. But one thing to note is that they will be working against history in round five. Carlton have never won at the Adelaide Oval. You know who certainly didn't win at the Adelaide Oval in round one? The Lions. You know who certainly did win at the Gabba in round two? The Lions. Yeah, and it looked to be a pretty convincing win until some interesting intervention. Yeah, we uh, we have our main character for the round, clearly. Yeah, more on that in a little bit, but right away, list selection was a big point of discussion. Stephen May was not able to get fit in time, despite being named initially... Adam Tomlinson ended up replacing him like he did round one. Christian Salem was initially regarded as being a week away until he had a meniscus tear, which now keeps him out for a month or more. And then Brisbane just went 
even taller in their lineup in some facets than normal. I did not expect the inclusion of Darcy Fort, and I wasn't really sure how that matchup was going to work. I still thought that Max Gaughan and Brody Grundy would have the edge, and then very quickly, Max Gaughan was out of this game. That was the turning point. I was half asleep watching this game because I had had a long day. I had a lot going on work-wise. Did you know that Max Gaughan had gotten injured, though? Yes, and when I saw that, even in my half-asleep state, I could register, they're fucked. And sure enough, they were fucked. Yeah, was diagnosed on Saturday as an MCL sprain with a timeline of four to six weeks for the captain. From there, Brisbane were pushing the pace early. Their forward pressure was paying dividends. They were plus 15 on inside 50s in the first quarter, 21 to 6. They were 8 to 1 on center clearances. They led by 25. And I would say they didn't look back, but that main character did creep in. Second quarter was freer flowing, not as much in terms of scoring. The big thing I noticed was that Cam Rayner was really established as a halfback in that quarter. And the move looks pretty smart. He'd been trialing at halfback during the preseason and with the spoils they have in midfield and forward, it was worth the try. And he and Connor McKenna can both really accelerate play from there. I just still have questions about how much they can actually defend, though Raider did show some better defensive moments. All game, Melbourne struggled with contested marks. As of a couple minutes into the fourth quarter, they had taken a grand total of two contested marks. They had also only taken two in the first round against the Dogs, though that was under very different and victorious circumstances. You had Brisbane leading by 40 points with 12 minutes left. Oh, no. Oh, no. Going back and watching that moment that the power went out, you could see a few seconds before there was a bit of a flicker of the Gabba lights. Yeah, the power went out. There was one of the... Lights was actually, like, on fire. A single light, but James Brayshaw was going nuts over that on the broadcast for a little bit. Play stopped with exactly 12 minutes left, and the delay was a little over 38 minutes. What is it with round two of delays, and specifically the Friday night game? Because you probably remember what happened last year. Yeah, um, as much as you don't want to remember that, it was an amazing moment that just happened to be against Geelong that Buddy kicked his thousandth. Also, Zach Tui gave a fan his wallet back. And then Buddy didn't do jack shit in the grand final. Yeah. The other thing I remember is that, was it Chad Border and somebody else who ended up on the street? Or at, or at the club across the street? Yeah, that was probably the funniest part of it, was that some of the Swans players got lost. But I appreciate that now we've had a longer quarter. Yeah. So just like last year, a 30-plus minute delay in the Friday night of round two. There were actually two delays in round two last year. Because there was the alarm from the fire in the ponds for stand at the G in the Collingwood-Adelaide game. But when the power came back on, it's as if the D switched on as well. All of a sudden, they were getting some of their center clearances. They were able to retain the ball in their forward half. They ended up getting six goals in a row to bring it to a 12-point contest. In all this, Ben Brown ended up kicking two of those and had another four-goal performance. I was wondering, could we really have another draw? We had a chance. It was 12 points with a minute 45 left. But once Jack Viney missed a connection to 
Tom McDonald on the handball with about a minute 15 left. It was clear that the Lions were going to be able to hold on, and they did. 14-9-93 to Melbourne, 13-4-82. And it ended with a very nice 69-minute, 54-second fourth quarter, breaking the record from last year's Friday night round two game by over eight minutes. You know, Chris Fagan complaining so much that Melbourne got out to warm up after the delay earlier than them was some sort of an excuse. He says there was some sort of administrative confusion, whatever it was. I wonder if the Lions just expected things to be at a slower pace after that and that and for Melbourne to already kind of count themselves out, especially because there was so much concern about, you know, with Gone having already been injured, con- concerns of players exerting themselves too much after the half hour downtime and getting injured again. Soft tissue concerns were a big talking point on the broadcast. It was good on Fox Sports 2, by the way, for sticking with the broadcast the whole way. I really thought they were just going to cut it off and say, screw you guys, I'm going home. Yeah, I was surprised that they resumed the game altogether. Not to mention Fox Sports 2 actually stuck with the broadcast all the way through Roaming Brian. I really regret being asleep at that. Yeah, it is that. It turned into Roaming Cam for a bit, too. Did anything especially memorable come out of that, or? Honestly, no. It was just, wow, they stuck around for Roman and Brian? Were there any good wows or anything, like when? Nah, not not really. It was it was nice to to hear a bit more out of Connor McKenna, though, and he was explaining how what he was doing the, the past two years, being back on Northern Ireland. Football success there, winning, winning the All-Ireland Senior Championship, and also being involved with some horse training. He just seems like a really cool guy, McKenna. My favorite part of Roaming Brian is when he's fascinated to find that people have families. Wow. Back to the game, though. Dane Zorko was really strong in his first game of the season, and he made me a very happy fantasy owner. Kicked two goals from 22 disposals and nine marks. I wonder if he's really freer to play his way now between the midfield depth and the lack of responsibility of being a captain. I think it's also just being able to play off of guys like Josh Dunkley, and he's playing a little bit further forward, it seems like. Yeah, he, I mean, he was pushed back a bit last year, and I'm not sure if that was really his style. His and Jared Berry's pressure in tackling the midfield were influential. I had drafted Zorko and knew he was going to be out injured, and I didn't think he would have this good of a performance, but I'm not complaining. Yeah, he got me 116. Very nice. Also happy that Joe Danaher had an accurate game in front of goal, kicking 4-2. He had been so up and down with some of his set shots last year, and with Eric Hipwood getting less of the ball, Danaher has needed to finish more, and he did in this game. I still have my doubts, though, about whether the Lions have the ability to really hunker down in the back and not require a score of 80 or more points to win. I will note that Brandon Starcevich had a much better game than he did against Port, and he's really someone that has needed to step up with Marcus Adams and Darcy Gardner being absent. He was really awful in that Port game, and I I usually expect him to be a, a pretty solid player. I mean, we know his ceiling. He was a 22 under 22 player, and rightfully so, a couple years back. But if you look at Brisbane's trends from last year, in their seven wins by three or fewer goals last year, they averaged just under 94 points. And in their five wins that were finalists, they averaged 103.4. So if teams can score enough against them, if they can put up triple digits, I'm not sure if Brisbane has an answer other than full speed ahead offensively. And that's 
the one thing that concerns me. Do they have that sort of defensive dimension that they can still rely on in, in tight games like that? That said, they just have so many weapons. So Benjamin, why don't you give their stats and then I'll point out who didn't make big contribution. Okay. So uh, how about rising star Will Ashcroft? Because we can't give it to Harry Sheasel again. Ashcroft kicked 1-1 from 31 disposals and 9 clearances. To be a leading possession getter and be functional in that, in that stack of a midfield as a second gamer is remarkable. Really strong in the center square. Lockie Neal and Josh Dunkley were closely behind Ashcroft in a lot of those stats. Both just kicking one point each, but Neal with 27 touches, 8 clearances and 8 marks. Dunkley with 26 and 9 clearances. In the back, Harris Andrews had 22 disposals, 10 marks, and 8 intercepts. More of the game we expected him to have because he's another player where we know his ceiling. And he's going to need to be at that ceiling much more often this year. Let me just run through a few names here that weren't major contributors. Eric Hipwood. Been really quiet these first couple games. He kind of got put on blast for not seeing an open Danaher at one point. Um, Zap Bailey. 10 disposals. Yeah, he had two goals, but limited to 10 disposals. Smart when he did get chances, though. I noted that Daniel Rich only had 14 disposals. Gained up to 300 meters, which is really rare for him. Lincoln McCarthy, only one late goal. Cam Rayner, just those 16 disposals. Jack Payne, just 11. Charlie Cameron, only a couple goals. They did what was required, though. And, you know, Rich not having all those numbers, a lot of that was because there weren't many behinds on Melbourne's front. They kicked 13-4. But this is why I was so high on the Lions to begin with this year. You've got an embarrassment of riches that most teams don't have. And when they're all clicking like that, I don't know if anyone can match up to them. Also, should note that Brisbane nearly doubled up Melbourne in the clearance count 60 to 32. That's really the one stat you need. But if you want more stats, here's some stuff for Melbourne. Clayton Oliver, a goal and a behind off 37 disposals, nine tackles, he gained 774 meters. Angus Brayshaw, 27 disposals and 12 intercepts. Christian Petraka, by his standards, a pretty ordinary game. A game that would be outstanding for most. A goal, 24 disposals, 472 meters. Lockie Hunter, a goal, 22 disposals, 484 meters. Jake Lever, 20 disposals, 13 intercepts and 8 marks. And Ben Brown kicked 4 goals straight. Brisbane just did a lot of little things right throughout the game that added up. And seeing that they had eight contested marks to Melbourne's two. I think that's a pretty accurate reflection of their strengths in both 50s. So normally, the first game on Saturday is one that we kind of end up watching casually. It's like, all right, we'll, you know, have dinner, watch an inferior team get knocked around. I mean, a team definitely did get knocked around in the first game. But usually it's like you don't go into it with a lot of anticipation. Like you mentioned, like, uh, the matchup isn't usually this juicy. You mentioned that Collingwood-Adelaide game from last year, and I feel like that's a really good example of what it typically is. Because I remember being at dinner with a friend and watching on my phone and looking around like, wait, why are they not playing? Yeah, I remember texting you, fire of the stands, or maybe false alarm. I think it actually was a fire at a concession. It was like... Enough to set off smoke alarms, I get it. 
But that's usually like the type of game you expect where it's just, you know, you're not on the edge of your seat. It's not a matchup that you go out of your way to be fully invested in, whereas this one was, and it kind of ended up being a major dud. We expected a lot more out of Port Adelaide after last week, and, well, we got a lot out of Collingwood, but... I mean, the biggest thing we got out of Port Adelaide was a crowd because of the buses that they brought in, and there was a fight in the upper deck towards the end of the game, which... Just a bit of banter. I don't know if it involved anyone who was bussed in, but it's like, like, if you were to guess which two teams are most likely to have fans fighting each other and they're not like and they're not like traditional rivals it's like if, if it was inter- teams in different states you would expect it to be Collingwood against Port but yeah 60,744 at the G the highest ever home and away attendance for a matchup between the two teams and actually Port's highest ever home and away attendance period that was really the big positive out of this game for them well Port gave up 44 in the first quarter, 83 in the first half, and just there was no defense. Finals were Collingwood 21-9-135 to Port Adelaide 9-10-64. Collingwood at 61.4% efficiency inside 50. And the craziest stat to me from this entire game is that Collingwood still recorded 17 more tackles, 56-39. The Port defenders, they just, they didn't, do anything i created the what does he even do meme for billy j williams of the eagles last week i could have done it for really the entire port back line well actually except for ryan burton we know what ryan burton does he gets suspended for two games for a dangerous tackle on jamie elliott the worst one of all though was miles bergman not to be confused with his brother miller and also not to be confused with jason horn francis by the advertiser Bergman was visibly bad getting on the wrong end of of matchups a lot of the time. There was one point late in the second quarter where he just kind of let Darcy Cameron find Taylor Adams at the edge of 15. Didn't impact the play at all. There was nothing really good that came out of this for Port. What I noticed for Collingwood, though, is three of their tallest who played more forward all started their, the game really well and each played to their strengths. Darcy Cameron had three tackles in the first quarter was a leading disposal getter from the beginning and was winning in the rock. Mason Cox was supporting him and scored. And Dan McStay consistently won one-on-one against Alira Lear. It took a little bit longer for Billy Frampton to get into the game defensively for Collingwood. It was his first game for them. It was against one of his former teams. He did not have a great time early on against Charlie Dixon. Really, the success that we saw for Port early on was Dixon winning a couple times against Frampton. But off that one-on-one matchup, he grew into the game and played a lot better. And if he could regularly do that, then he'll be a defensive addition on who Collingwood could positively reflect in all likelihood. You know, having him, he's not going to be that top one-on-one defender. You got Darcy Moore and Nathan Murphy for that. So if he can be a supporting guy, helping maybe a less prominent one-on-one matchup, while also being maybe kind of a third man in to some battles, that could be a good role for Frampton. McStay really creates a matchup problem physically that was one of the things Collingwood was missing last year. But I think this game is just a testament to Nick Dacos that they had Lockie Jones trying to tag him. Jones, who had played so well all over the ground last week, 
And after a quarter, they gave it up and just said, fuck it, this doesn't work. It's a sign of respect to have a tag put on you. And then it's an even bigger sign of respect for them to try it for one quarter and then just say, fuck it, this is not working. We give up. Both Dacos brothers had some brilliant plays and they were the ones that really caught people's eyes in, in this one. And rightfully so. Collinwood had 14 different goal kickers, but both Dacos brothers had two goals. Nits were definitely highlights. One of his ended up being one of the goal of the week nominees just because of a good passage of play. And then his second one was from 48 out, and that got a lot of people on their feet again near the end of the game. Nick had 32 disposals, 11 score involvements, and gained 661 meters. Josh, 26 disposals, and gained 574. We're getting used to these sorts of performances from the Daycost brothers, which is kind of insane in its own right. Should we describe that goal now or save it for when we talk about the nominee? I'm going to save it. Also, I realized I really missed a possibility to just transition between the Friday Nighter and this one by just saying power failure. And that kind of was, I guess, the overarching theme of this round. Well, I haven't to be that they were back-to-back games. Like I already said, the main character of this round has to be the Gabba Lights, but the theme is power failure. And you talk about the Daycons Brothers on the young end. Scott Pendlebury and Steel Sidebottom are still working their magic as well. Pendlebury can seamlessly play on pretty much every spot on the ground, and Sidebottom got some of the scoring going early. Collingwood have really filled out and older signed their list by also bringing in Tom Mitchell, and Mitchell with a very functional game too. I think what I'm realizing is he just didn't have the pieces around him at Hawthorne these past couple years where we could really see how strong of a player he is. Mitchell had a goal from 27 disposals and eight clearances. And we talked last week about how his center clearances could start a chain with Jordan Degoe and Taylor Adams. That was on display again in this one. And Collingwood were really lacking that bona fide center clearance guy last year. The multitude of weapons they have really impressed me in this game. You know, I'm not going to anoint them as champions or anything right away. If you want to crown them, then crown their ass! And I don't know if they're going to be able to keep up this style of scoring 130 per game. Let's remember, again, how depleted the defense was that they faced in round one. But that they have this upside and these capabilities. Like, this is obviously a flag contender team, even if they have to end up adapting to a different style. Like, maybe they end up as a more defensive-based team as the year goes on, and that's how it pans out. The fact is... In these two weeks, they've shown that they're going to be there. I mentioned Sidebottom's impact. He had a goal from 24 disposals. Darcy Cameron, behind 18 disposals and 9 score involvements, did a lot of that early. Darcy Moore in the back, 15 disposals, 10 intercepts. Leading from the back as he should. Just overall dominance for Collingwood. Plus 57 in contested possessions. 155 to 98. Rudy Edsall informed us that that's the 7th biggest differential on record. And he believes that goes back to 1999. They were 15 to 4 contested marks, plus 19 in free kicks, and still being plus 17 in tackles. It's as complete a game as I've seen. I hate to say this about any team, but Pork got outworked, plain and simple. You know, their forwards, when they actually got forward, were all right, but Pork's defense and midfield got completely outworked in this game. 
a few Ryan Burden errors proved costly, and it wasn't just the one that got him suspended. I noted a couple other times before that goal nominee, Burden and Tampa's Day thought the ball went out and everybody stopped playing. And that ended up costing him. And earlier back in the first quarter, Burton couldn't get a ball over the boundary. And Bobby Hill was able to start a passage or really restart a passage. And then when Bergman gave up a high contact free kick, Josh Dacos made a five goals in a row for Collingwood, stretched it out to 24. And they didn't look back from there. Thinking back to that first Burton situation, I can hear every American football coach yelling, play to the whistle. Yeah, that happened in a couple other games as well. Playing to the whistle is kind of the secondary theme of the flow of play of this round. So who did have good stat hauls for Porter, at least reasonable ones? Ollie Wines, one behind, one very rectangular head and 21 disposal. You're going to keep going with this rectangular head thing. Yes, because it's fascinating. And Willem Drew, 17 disposals and eight clearances. That's literally it. Yeah, Drew is just one of those Plays in the guts kind of guys, sometimes employed as a tagger. Surprised we didn't see him maybe try to get put onto Nick Dacos at some point. It just did not work for Port. And really, it didn't work for either South Australian team this week. We were high on the Crows for a half last week, and we didn't even get that chance this time. We got about a good quarter out of them, a good quarter and a half to me. They were missing reasonable scoring shots. They kicked 1-3 for the first quarter. Richmond was already beginning to open up the play, and it made me question some of their selection. I was really surprised that Jordan Butts got omitted considering Richmond's wealth of talls between Tom Lynch, Shelby Dan Curvis, Noah Bolton when he swings forward, factoring in there. Samson Ryan, hell, how about that guy? Scored his first three goals from his first three kicks, albeit in his second game, which has got to be even rarer, but I noticed this guy during the preseason. I'd forgotten that he made his debut, actually, back in 2021. It was a really cup of coffee type of game, but noticed him in the preseason contest against Melbourne, expected him to get a chance at some point, and didn't expect it to happen so quickly, but with Ben Miller not having a great performance in round one and Yvonne Soto still being hurt, the opportunity opened up for him, and he took advantage of it. Richmond led 25-9 after a quarter and could have led by more, and then they really poured it on to the second. They took a 69-24 halftime lead. Nice. Richmond scored 19 points from forward half turnovers in the first quarter alone. They have 12 forward half intercepts in the first quarter to Richmond to Adelaide's four. And then it looked like the seven goal to two second quarter would be all she wrote. Now, there was one thing that happened in the first half that was less savory for the Tigers, though. Yeah, Nathan Broad kind of had a sling tackle on Patrick Parnell. I don't know how he, how you describe it. I think sling tackles the appropriate term. Yeah, it was a sling. Ended up going on his head. And Broad had gotten just his second career goal before that, too, in game 109. So, good start. And then ground to a halt really quickly. He's been sent straight to the tribunal, so it's at least three weeks. Not just this year, but over the last couple years, the way we've seen is usually that, like, four is kind of the max, unless it's something really insane. I mean, it was it was a senseless thing to do, and the tackle had already been made. 
you don't need to put like a finishing move on a tackle anywhere on the field. This isn't WWE. This isn't Super Smash Brothers. And to do it in that spot was especially bad. I mean, even if it was in the middle of the field, it's like you already tackled him, play's done, and said he took it above and beyond. So Richmond, even with that, went into half up by 45, and then all of a sudden the Crows had a monster third quarter. They had the first 15 inside 50s, and in that time, Puck lead back to 24 and looked to maybe be on the attack for more. Got it down to 14 by the end of the quarter, but in that quarter, they kicked 5-8. Like, I could not describe by the fact that they outscored them 38-7 to just how much more dominant they were. They kicked 1-8 in the third quarter from beyond 30 meters. And a number of those were from pretty straight-on angles. Luke Pedlar, as much as I like him, had a couple bad ones. Taylor Walker had a bad one. He has not been his usual dominant self so far this season. Isaac Rankin had a couple of earlier misses that were an issue. And, you know, you're kind of thinking two different things. On one hand, they've come this close. They've probably pissed away their chances. On the other, it's like, they look so dominant that they might be able to get this even though they've been missing. Ultimately, they did get to within a point. Did they get that other point just for having a crack? Get a point just for having a crack. No, they got it to one and didn't get it any closer. It was kind of a quick bounce-back sequence through the middle after a Harry Schoenberg intercept that led to a Darcy Fogarty goal that cut it to 76-75. And Fogarty might already be that most important market goal target for the Crows at this point with Walker's early struggles. After that, I noticed something that was surprising. Dustin Martin got subbed off. Don't know any injury concerns about that still, but he got subbed off for Ryan Mansell. Yeah, that worked pretty much immediately because off that center clearance, Marlon Pickett bounced a kick into the 50. Tom Lynch had a really nice tap off the ground when he was kind of going back away from the ball and Jack Revolt set up the sub, Mansell, stretched the lead back to seven, and the Crows never got it closer again. After cutting it to 76-75, Adelaide ran out of gas and got a outscored 32-1. to We still don't know much about the Dusty injury other than that it might be getting some sort of soft tissue scan. It seems like this might have been something that they were prepared to have to manage at some point. I think it was more of a management thing and just a talking point because it's Dusty. I mean, I think it would be a talking point if it was any star player, at least for me. For Richmond, it happens to be Dusty that gets that sort of buzz. I mean, if it had been, say, Tim Taranto or Frank Cotchin, it still would have been pretty noteworthy from my perspective. But anyway, the move worked. Richmond finishes on that 32-1 to run and wins 17-6, 108 to 10-16-76. Yes, Adelaide had more scores. It makes sense if you watch the game. They pissed away so many opportunities again, and they allowed Tom Lynch to beat them for the very first time. He had been 0-11 against the Crows in his AFL career. Is it just that Tom Lynch couldn't beat the other Tom Lynch? So, I've seen some pretty troubling trends from the Crows over the first two weeks. Things that you associate with losing teams. They get completely crushed for noticeable stretches. In this case, pretty much the entire first half. 
especially the second quarter, but really the whole first half. And they miss a lot of easy shots. And like, I know that's one of those things that can normalize week in, week out. I get it. But there are real concerns and real negative trends. And when this looked like a team that could make a move and become a finalist or at least be one of the bigger movers up the ladder this year, they haven't shaken off trends that are consistent with losing teams. And that's much more concerning than the simple fact that they're 0-2. Like, if you had told me they'd be 0-2, I'd say, damn, they lost to GWS. But at the same time, you could talk me through it and be like, yeah, you're facing an inspired team under a new coach in their first game. I see how it could happen. It shouldn't happen, but maybe GWS is just on fire that day. And then Richmond, okay, but it's how they lost those games. It makes me think of how the Bulldogs started the season last year, and I'm wondering if it's going to be time soon to bring out the legitometer or are you screwedometer, dust those off and really examine the Crows to wonder how real or fake they might be. Actually, could just use the aloe black test. Is you really real or is you really fake? I'm just disappointed because this is a team that I think, you know, they were a popular pick to be big movers. Look, if they win two of these next three games, we'll be saying, all right, they're finding their form because they've got the showdown next week, which they're the rogue team for, which makes a difference. They've got Frio at home and then they host Carlson in the gather round. And again, Carlson have yet to win at the Adelaide Oval. But like, there's a real possibility that they come out of this at 0-5. I guess it's just an Adelaide thing. And if they do, then I think you got to start having some not very fun talks about Matthew Nix, about their list management, about their club as a whole, because they haven't made finals since 2017. And it just leaves you thinking, like, is this rebuild going to get anywhere? I was really critical of Adelaide's defense and their selection. I want one positive defender for Richmond, and that's Noah Balta, a really versatile player, and his full skill set was visible at fullback in this game. Did well as a last line of defense, especially with Josh Gibkiss and Robbie Terrence still being out. And he's also been really reliable in starting rebound play. You can see some of his forward instincts showing there, so he's a great piece to be able to throw back there. And he was important in keeping things stable as the Crows were getting toward maybe equalizing or taking the lead. I will say, I thought he struggled during that third quarter. I mean, the whole team did. But if you want to look at it from the glass half full side, it's like that just proves how important he is and how much they need him to play well. Balta only have 13 disposals, but 11 intercepts and 10 marks while gaining 479 meters. That's a stat line of someone who makes the most of the opportunities they have when getting the ball in defense. Other notable stat lines for Richmond, Tim Tarano were behind 28 disposals and 8 tackles. My statement from last week about him remains, he looks like he's been playing with this group forever. I am glad to have him in my team. Liam Baker with a goal from 25 disposals. I am glad to have him in my team. He put up 100. Really versatile. Again, it's a trait that's common throughout Richmond's list is that you have guys you could plug in in so many different spots. Daniel Rioli had 23 disposals, as did Jacob Hopper. Hopper also scored. 
when Richmond were going the right way, it was because the whole team was doing good things. For Adelaide, I maybe was too quick to remove Rory Laird from my captain role. Uh, 39 disposals behind, 11 score involvements, 8 tackles and 7 clearances. I mean, I still won, but I'm glad he's playing like a number one pick, though. Jordan Dawson, 27 disposals, 645 meters gained, and Lachlan Scholl, 27 disposals. He was more active among the inclusions for this round, but I'm left with so much frustration about this game for the Crows, and I'm not even a Crows fan or a Tigers fan. I had no dog in this fight whatsoever, and I'm left pissed. Welcome back. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at American Study. You can find me personally at Castle Media on Twitter. That's Castle with a K. You'd be surprised at how many people spell it with a C. Even after you tell them it's with a K, like if, you know, they're looking for like your reservation or something, maybe they're just that fond of former Tom Brady stand-in Matt Castle. I don't know, but you can find me on Twitter personally at BenjaminHK01. And Grian Arabe, the footy cat, is running around somewhere outside Ethan's room and is on Instagram at cat named Grian. He was in here briefly, but clearly didn't want to stay. So we expected a lot more out of this first late Saturday game, didn't we? I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect. I expected, I expected something closer than what we had. Weird first half for the Dogs and the Saints. Ethan, this was really your game. And I just want to hear your thoughts on this one. Yeah. Um, St. Kilda beat the Bulldogs by 51, 14, 8, 92 to 5, 11, 41. And other than the second quarter, the Bulldogs looked like shit. They scored 28 of those 41 in the second quarter. They trailed 25 to 1 after one. It was 32 to 1 early in the second. And then they got their shit together. They got a goal right after the siren to go into halftime down just 5 34 29 when Rowan Marshall gave up a free to Tim English who despite the rest of his team's performance I still really like I think he's one of the guys that isn't just in the lineup to win center bounces he's an actual skilled player up and down the ground I think Rowan Marshall's like that too but English has the greater versatility English is one of those guys that you know if you really wanted or if you had the flexibility to move him around like a Mark Blitzovs, probably could because he's just really multi-talented. I really like him, but I didn't like most of what his team did in this game. I do want to mention it was a good little scrap heading into halftime after that goal where you saw Zane Cordy getting into it with his former teammates, which I will compare to something that happened in the other game at that time. Apparently... Cordy was really impactful. This is what Ross Lyons said in game planning for the Bulldogs, kind of giving knowledge about their system and helping St. Kilda work through it and plan around some of the Bulldogs' tactics going both ways, which is the kind of insight you want. And it's also a bit damning to Luke Beveridge that the dogs just fell back on the same things again and again. You can hear stories of this happening to NFL teams, like the Buccaneers doing this to the Raiders in the Super Bowl. Where it's like, really, you didn't change up any of your signals or anything? And it's that sort of situation here, I think. But um, I'm surprised you led with the dogs being so bad, but I understand it. I mean, we'd already seen a good show out of the Saints in round one. 
We arguably saw a better one in this game, though, and a couple of players that stood out in particular there were young guy that you had picked out, Anthony Caminiti, and I am now a huge Matthias Filippo fan after two games. I liked him in game one. He had the first goal in each of the first three quarters in this game. He scored from 59 to open the third quarter, less than a minute in, and really reestablished control for the Saints. And they go on to outscore the Dogs 37 to 9 in that quarter to pull away. I just really like his game. And I said a week ago, he's probably the most polished, other than I guess Sheasel, of the newest draft class. You put him above Ashcroft. Yeah, I, I need to watch Ashcroft more closely, but the thing is, Filippo doesn't have as many solid pieces around him as Ashcroft does, so that makes him more visible in that sense. I love this young Saints group, though. The combination of him, Owens, Windhager, Caminiti getting his first two goals, including his first for 54 out. Uh, Jack Bytel is 23. Ryan Burns is only 21. Unfortunately, Bytel missed this game. But I don't trust the Saints to not fuck this up because they're the Saints. But if they don't fuck this up, this young core is going to be really fun for a long time. Imagine if they hadn't done fuck all in the trade period and had supplanted this young core with some interesting pieces that could really help right now. This could this could honestly be a legit finals contender. Remember, they were in between coaches at that point. They were making changes in their football department. It was bad timing. Exactly bad timing. You took the words out of my mouth. But... Since then, they've clearly been doing the right things. And remember, Caminiti was a preseason supplemental addition when all those injuries got bad, which they still are, and they got worse. Yeah, Jack Steele broke his collarbone pretty cleanly in the third quarter and then came back with his right shoulder strap to play the fourth, even though the game was totally put away by them, which just makes him an absolute fucking maniac. And he's going to be out the next, what, four to six weeks, I think, was the timeline. But I just love that not only did he get back in there, he got back in there when it wasn't necessary in the slightest. The thing that I noticed about this game is really a lot of it was dictated by how each team fared in their defensive 50. Because the Saints were really strong in pressure in both 50s, I'd say, but were able to keep some of the Bulldogs forwards at bay with some, with some pressure when they needed to. Meanwhile, the dogs could not lock down things at all. And I saw a table of points for and against coming from the defensive 50 thus far this season. The Bulldogs have already surrendered 75 points from a team's defensive 50. And that puts them at a differential of minus 55 through two rounds. So their forwards can't lock the ball in. They're allowing things to come back out too easily. And why again did they make all the positional moves they did? Why can we not figure out where Aaron Naughton and Sam Darcy are playing? Why is Josh Bruce playing back? Yeah, I would flip Bruce and Naughton. Um, and Darcy just looks like he doesn't know where he's supposed to be. Don't blame him. Yeah, I don't think it's as much his doing as it is from upstairs. But he ended up getting subbed out. And to borrow a quote from this 1990s show that lasted one season, nothing of value was lost. The show is called The Critic. They parodied him in The Simpsons at one point. But also, note from the dog side, Hayden Crozier. I don't care that he finished with a behind. 22 disposals, 10 marks, and 8 intercepts. 
he had a bad game and Taylor DeRay was like, if you had to make a team of worst players of the week, it would have him, Cam Guthrie, for a while, Jesse Hogan was trending towards that list. More on him later. Miles Bergman, who I keep confusing with his brother. But I will say, the Saints played a good game. And I still don't think this is a final scene. I think the Saints are playing in, like, their best possible form. And losing steals certainly won't help with that. But it's like, you need this version of Mason Wood, who's just been awesome the last two weeks. You need... Philippo, Caminiti, Windhager, Owens, etc. to really play like this. Dougal Howard and Caleb Wilkie to keep up their work in the back. That said, you know, Ross Lyon is regarded as such a good defensive coach. And Benjamin, you just mentioned what they do in their own 50. And they seem to be really good at swarming the ball the moment you enter their 50. And I think that's the Ross Lyon effect. And I think he has had a good relationship so far with Howard and Wilkie, who have really seemed to play off of that. Like, could you imagine what he would do with, like, Jacob Wiedering? That would be fun. No, I am not suggesting Jacob Wiedering is going to request for a trade or free agency to St. Kilda. I mean, I'm just matching up, like, you know, that type of player. But um, the main character of this game was Matthias Filippo, and that's main character in a good way. He has made this team so much more exciting to watch so quickly because in our three plus years of watching the Saints, they never had an individual player with that sort of appeal. Like Max King is interesting because he could kick six one or one six, but it's like, what does he do? You know, he catches a mark and he kicks the ball. Filippo is really versatile and he's an individual player that makes you want to turn on the game. He makes you want to go out of your way to watch the Saints. He makes you want to rev up the Bugatti and drive to Marvel Stadium to watch them play. Rev up the Bugatti! Honestly, Michito Pepper Owens, as you've uh, coined him, should and will fall into that group soon, if he hasn't already. But the way Filippo started out his career makes him all the more watchful, just because this is the new face for St. Kilda. There's a different level of fun to how he plays the game that only a few players in the entire competition can match up with. I just want to give a couple of points about him. He was born in the final days of 2004. At the time he was born, the Boston Red Sox were two months removed from going from losers to insufferable assholes. George W. Bush was between his second election and his second inauguration. And Benjamin, you're the music guy, so... I want you to guess, what was the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 on the day he was born? End of December 04. I'm honestly not great on, like, mid-2000 stuff. I I'll admit, I thought this song was a few years older, but still, it's pretty funny to me. Any guess? I feel like if you get, get it wrong, it'll be way funnier, especially if you're way off with, like, the type of song. So I want you to guess. Is this a song that you think I enjoy? I don't know. You've definitely heard it. I just want you to guess what was the number one song in the final week of 2004. Guess something, and I don't care what it is. Okay, I said how you remind me, but I think it's a little too soon. It was Drop It Like It's Hot. Okay. I for some reason thought that was like, oh, one. Yeah, it, it sounds like an earlier song than that, but um, 
Like, I think of anyone born after, like, 2000 as really, really young. Anyone younger than me. Like, anyone younger than my grade level, at least. Yeah, basically. Well, Matthias Filippo is definitely that. He's, like, young enough that he still has plenty of time to date Leo DiCaprio. Actually, how you remind me was 2001, so I guess we kind of flop, kind of flipped things there. But... Yeah, he's really young and really good, and it's one of those things that makes you feel like you've done nothing with your life. But I just enjoy watching him, like, for the first time, the Saints have that player that's like, I will go out of my way to watch. Because, I gotta admit, like, in my first year of watching footy, if you asked me to name all 18 clubs, the Saints would have been one of the last ones. They were just kind of forgettable, and he makes them more memorable. Also, Taylor Duray, I mentioned him briefly. You know how I had said Tim Taranto plays like he's been with the Tigers forever? Duray played like this was his first game ever with the Bulldogs because, like, in that first quarter, there were stretches when he was just, like, running into teammates. It was bad. I clearly didn't watch that part of things that closely because by then, Frio and North was getting underway. That was more interesting and back and forth from the beginning. I know I've taken a lot of time on this game, but, like, yeah, we've talked about the Bulldogs not just having a really good top three defensively, but being a good defensive unit, and then when both DeRay and Crozier have shitty games, it means that those top guys don't get the credit they're due because everyone else detracts from them. Those top guys can't make a defensive unit on their own, just like how the top midfielders can't make a full unit on their own. I was thinking of it as... This has to be a huge strength, and when two of the guys that are supposed to be pluses turn into very large minuses, that unit's not a strength. Mm-hmm. So he told the stat lines of note, Jack Sinclair and his lots of hair, 33 disposals and 9 intercepts. The Mad Lad Steele with a goal from 29 disposals. Brad Crouch, 26, 9 tackles and 6 clearances. Sev Ross, 24, 8 clearances and 581 meters gained. He's a player that I just end up noticing a lot with St. Kilda because he tends to be one of their most active players, regardless of where he ends up on the ground. Mason Wood, kicking 1-2 from 24. He had eight score involvements and 469 meters gained. Nice. I had to prompt Ethan for that one. But yeah, Wood has become a whole lot more watchable. Brad Hill had 22 disposals and eight marks. Ben Patton, 21 and eight intercepts. Rowan Marshall, 20 and nine clearances. Went back and forth with Tim English in the ruck all day. Neither of them really got the better of each other in those immediate contests, but Marshall did manage to have his impact off of that, as did English. And Mitch Owens kicked 3-2 with 17 disposals and 10 score involvements. As soon as he debuted, I noted him as being one of the players I really liked watching from St. Kilda, and I'm glad you came around to that quickly as well, to the point that you nicknamed him. Look, if Patton keeps this up defensively, maybe... Ross Lyon really is, like, defensive god, and this team could really take things to a far higher level than we expected. That said, look, I'm not going to go nuts over them not allowing a goal in the fourth quarter yet. Their opponents kicked 0-7 and missed some pretty easy shots. As for their opponents, Bailey Smith, 28 disposals, 598 meters, and no cocaine yet, and no headbutts. Tom Libertore, 24 disposals, 8 tackles. And Tim English, a goal, 21 disposals, and eight marks. He's just he's just one of the best all-around players out there, regardless of position. I like him more and more every time I watch him. 
You know who I like more and more every time I watch him? All both times I've watched him in an AFL game, and I feel like a lot of people feel the same way about him. Gee, I wonder who you're going to say. I'm totally not just stalling to give our listeners time to think of who it might be. Come on, it's Harry Sheasel. Before we start talking about this game and getting into how disappointing Fremantle's been and how disappointing their offense has been, I just want to mention the scene at the very start of this game where pretty much every docker took time to shove Griffith low before the opening bounce and how different that was than the scene with Zane Cordy looking legitimately Veritas for were teammates at halftime. Well, the difference is Logue was traded away. He had requested a trade. Cordy was delisted. Nonetheless, you can tell that the Frio guys clearly still really like Griffin Logue because everyone just like smiled and walked up to him and pushed him. And it was just like a really funny and wholesome moment that I was very supportive of. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, and I and I love that he matched up with Matt Taberner right away. And the broadcast showed photos of the two of them together. They had been roommates. I will say, before I let you really take over this game, Taverner has not been off to a good start this year at all. I've never been a huge fan of Taverner, and he's been summed off twice now, and I don't know if he really has a long-term outlook with the club at this point. Between his fragility and younger talls making their cases, Luke Jackson might be spending some more time up there. Sean Darcy had way too much full forward time, in my opinion, and also... Jai Amos got into this game because he was a late in for Nat Fife who had a foot injury, and Amos is going to work his way into being a mainstay pretty damn soon. But these are two teams that have gotten pretty young lately, Frio and North. It's, again, a weird spot for Frio to be, to be getting so young. Oddly enough, these two games that start at the same time, Bulldogs and Saints and Frio and North, they both had the road team that many people, including us, tipped to be near the bottom of the pack this year, start four goals to none. Just a kind of coincidental happening in both those games simultaneously. North were willing to be physical in this game from the beginning, and I was really enjoying that. We'd seen North setting up really well ahead of the ball last game, that classic Alistair Clarkson defense where they take away a lot of the preferred lanes, and they did that against Fremantle as well. All the while, coming back the other way, Harry Sheasel was starting passage as well. Luke Davies' Uniac was everywhere, and then some, a deserving 10 coaches vote performance again from him. And as I said, North kicked the first four goals, led by 10 at quarter time, 25-15. to 15. It took until right at the end of the first quarter for Frio's forward pressure to really start showing. But by then, it had been the first time since 2007 that North had led Frio in quarter time in Western Australia, which is remarkable in and of itself. Not much scoring to speak of in the second quarter, just a goal apiece, but there was just a bit of banter. off the ball involving a whole lot of marquee players, really. Nick Larkey, Caleb Sarag, Alex Pierce, and Jai Simpkin, who was suspended a game for hitting Caleb Sarong. Ah, well, if it isn't the simp. It took like a day for Fox to get the footage of the play because it was off the ball. But we actually saw it. It was like, oh, he hit him multiple times. It definitely worth the suspension. And it's a shame that Simpkin is being viewed in that light for this game because it was actually a really historic occasion. 
that multiple indigenous captains, multiple permanent indigenous captains were facing each other for the first time. Alex Pierce and co-captain Jai Simpkin. And they had a really cool moment with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags and a couple representatives at the coin toss ahead of the game. And I wanted to make sure that was mentioned. Simkin is one of the ones like, if you were to line up all the North players and ask like, which ones are Aboriginal, he would probably skip over him. And it's cool to see that like a lot of these guys that have indigenous roots, there's no like obvious physical characteristic. And it's just like something that's, you know, present in members of the community of all shapes and sizes. But in the second, you did see Frio finally get those overlapping handball runs through the middle that they were really hesitant to do all of last round in the start of this round. And it just makes no sense when they clearly play so much better with that style. It doesn't matter who they lost or who they gained going into this season. That should still be their identity. It's still the ideal Dockers way at this point. You saw bits and pieces of it, but you didn't see enough. Exactly. And considering what this game ended up being, if we saw a few more bits and pieces of it, it could have easily turned things in their favor. So both teams were pressuring well. Going into the second half, I noted that Frio weren't playing their full brand of football like they did much of last year, but were still starting to control more passages. They cut it to eight at halftime, and the margin stayed similar throughout the third quarter. Getting toward the end of things, though, North really locked down in terms of clearances. They had 16 of 18 in a stretch from the late third into the middle of the fourth quarter, but no one was able to really stretch out the lead any further than a few goals. In that time, Michael Walters had a really nice impact. He came on as the sub. He had been rehabbing from an Achilles injury, and I think it's pretty clear that he belongs in the main 22 at this point because... Frio looked a whole lot better with the energy he provided. I hate to say it, but I would put him in over just Matt Taverner right now. Taverner does not look fully there. I know he's had so many bat problems that it could certainly be tied into that. There's a good chance it is. I agree, though. And look, that straight up swap Walters for Taverner was when they started really playing, again, not really their way, but just better. And yeah, have Jayamas be that tall forward, get him that time, get him to grow into that role, and honestly do away with Tapper. That's the way I see it. As much as it may hurt Frio fans to hear it, I think that would be the better move. I think you could do it in a dignified way, you know, like haven't, like send him off, okay, of course, but just talk about it, you know, say that you're resting him and trying to get him up to full strength, because if he's not at full strength right now, I wouldn't be surprised because he certainly doesn't look like he is. I mean, this is a guy that he had a seven-bowl game last year, didn't he? That was round five last year against Essendon. So we know he could be at his best, and he's clearly not that. I kept noticing, though, that Fremantle was still prioritizing longer kicks and marks, and they weren't seeing players running alongside them in the forward half. This was noted by Adam Papalia on the broadcast as well, and it's just not something that I expected from Frio. If anything, other than Walter's, the solution at forward ended up ended up being surprisingly Jager O'Meara, who kicked a couple goals in the row to bring the Dockers back into it. His two goals made it a seven-point game with two minutes, 23 seconds to go. And then on the next bounce, one of the rare times Davies Uniac got stopped all game, 
Sean Darcy tackled him and forced a turnover. Renan Cox, who had switched forward, brought it within a point with a minute 53 to go. And the Dockers locked things into their forward half, into their forward 50 even. Michael Walters got a hold of the ball call on Luke McDonald at the edge of the 50. And for a second, I really thought that North were going to blow this and Frio were going to complete the comeback. I was like at, at this perfect balance where I thought either outcome was equally possible, which I feel like that's the most fun. I mean... It's fun when you think, oh, there's a 90% chance they're going to blow this lead and then they hold on. But when you can watch the final couple minutes of a game with like no sense of, oh, they're going to, you know, they've got this. That's, that's really exciting. I didn't think Frio completely had it. I thought it was maybe like two to one. They're going to do it versus North is going to hold on. I also want to mention real quick, there was one pretty sketchy call during that stretch where a really bad Andrew Brayshaw kick was just given a boundary throw and instead of being awarded straight to North. And that's just, there are times where there is way too much left up to the um, buyers. And I think that was one of those cases. They were talking on the broadcast about really bringing in the last touch rule to take away that sort of umpire discretion. I mean, I think bringing in a last touch rule would take away a lot from the game because it would mean the restart a lot of times would just be like a conservative kick backwards and an easy mark and then kind of try to progress out slowly so I'm in favor of the way it is largely I just think every now and then the umpires need to do a bit more to kind of err on the side of calling it deliberate without without going too far of course this is it and that's not even getting into the, the boundary throw one is one of the funniest things in the game, and taking that away would be terrible. Or maybe just minimizing its impact. But a minute three left after that, Walter's tackle. Getting down into the 30s of seconds remaining, the ball's by the goal line, and Harry Sheasel comes to the rescue. He avoids conceding him behind and leveling the scores by kicking the ball off the goal line. It led to a boundary throw-in, and... That was just a moment where the instincts of this new player really stood out. This was such a badass fucking play that he not only kicked it away and instead of conceding the point, but that he managed to kick it to an area that nobody could get to that simultaneously wasn't anywhere near going out on the full. You know, there are two 18-year-olds that were dominating at the same time. There is a difference between the way Matthias Filippo plays and the way Harry Sheasel plays, and not just because they play different positions. You can show someone who's never watched footy before a couple minutes of Matthias Filippo, and they'll know, yeah, that kid's good. Harry Sheasel, if you don't know the game, you might not get a sense of what makes him so special. Maybe you, maybe you appreciate the handballing ability, but he's one of those guys that, as we've grown to understand the game more, we're able to appreciate what he does. And it's so fun. He just operates on a different level. At this point, North were just trying to get the ball out of the defensive 50. They didn't care if it was going. They were trying to milk the clock as much as they could. Curtis Taylor, who had had a pretty strong game at times, could have made things a little bit better with greater accuracy on his kicks. Kicked out on the full with 13 seconds left. And then when Luke Ryan kicked it back into the 50, one of the common themes of the night, nobody could mark. Fremantle had a lot of missed marks that could have set up set shots or at least stabilized play. It was a 
really humid night over in Perth. And I think that affected just how the ball was. But even a couple more marks could have helped so much for free for Frio. And then the last kick of the game is where the controversy hit its peak. I still don't think of this as like a mammoth controversy. I don't think it of it as a big controversy because of how well the league dealt with it in the aftermath. Daniel Howe, who was the sub and made his North debut, had another deliberate kick out of bounds. This one bounced. You could hear the umpire saying on the raw audio, pay it, but they couldn't pay it because the siren went first. And it's not like a set shot where the run-up can continue after the siren. As soon as the siren goes, that's it. That was how North ended up holding on. So Frio, 10-12-72, defeated by North, 11-7-73. North are 2-0. I'm especially unbothered by this ending to the game because even if they would have had one last chance, it would have been a really tough kick to even get a single point. I agree, and, and I don't think it would have been that strong of a kick either. It might have been Ethan Hughes there on the boundary. I forget exactly, but... It wasn't necessarily to their advantage. The fact that they cleared it out at all pretty much ended the game. And the fact that they were able to make the stands they made in their defensive 50 meant North were deserving of that win. They did it without the hu- without a huge goal haul from Nick Larkey. I mean, he had four, which in a game where, you know, they scored 73 is still quite solid. And nobody else on either team scored more than two. But he didn't break through for, for six like he did last week, at least. But he was not like this dominant force or kind of like the main storyline in the game in any way. Davies Uniac certainly led the way, but it ended up being a team victory that North really had to grind out. And that's just really fun seeing them continuing to grow, continuing to embrace the style of play that Alistair Clarkson is having them play. They're playing an invested brand of team football, and that's what's necessary for building young group. A lot of things obviously had to go right for them to win this game. Most notably, Jaden Stevenson played really well. I don't care that his numbers weren't huge. Just did the sensible things. The problem is, as we've seen, he'll do this like once a month at most. If he could somehow channel this form more, if Alistair Clarkson could somehow be this Stevenson whisperer, yeah, look out. But they're playing together. They're competitive. They're having fun, and they're just so much more compelling to watch from start to finish than they ever were last year. And I'm happy for them. I'm happy for the players, and I'm happy for the fans. North became the 12th club to beat both Western Australian sides in back-to-back games, and the first to do it by winning both by less than a goal. So there's that. Thanks, Swamp. And they also did it while having an expected score from the X-score metric Six points lower than Frio, so a little wizardry there to pull it out. I'm disappointed in Frio. I remain disappointed as well. Again, their best moments are clearly when they channel what worked last year, and we don't see it nearly enough. They don't. They didn't work to make those runs happen nearly enough, those overlaps. Did you already give Davies Uniac slide? Ten coaches' votes for the second week in a row. A goal, a behind, 30 disposals, 11 clearances, 638 meters gained. And one F-bomb during the Fox footy interview with Matthew Pavlich. The interview was great. All the other media people cheering him on for doing it is the difference between Australia and America. Here you'd be fined $30,000.
the difference between that and, like, you know, the Randy Moss... That is a disgusting act. Like, I appreciate that, for the most part, broadcasters don't try to be the morality police, and they just have fun. So, great job, Davies Uniac. Harry Sheasel, 30 disposals, 8 marks, 562 meters gain, at a position that he's been playing for, like, 5 weeks. Jack Zevil, 26 disposals, 11 marks, 475 meters gained. Jai Simpkin, a goal, 25 disposals, 655 meters gained, but you're going to see an X next to his name when they get votes for him on Brownlow night. Aiden Core, 22 disposals and 10 marks. So remember, we're still waiting on George Wardlaw, who Harry Sheasel thinks is going to be fantastic. Zebel really belongs in defense, and it's good to see him kind of get that time again when he'd been thrown back and forth between there and forward last year. Also, Sheasel is the second player ever with 30 or more disposals in each of his first two AFL games, so another one to add to the unique stat list there. Caleb Sarong led Frio in possessions with 31. He had one point and gained 492 meters. Luke Ryan gained 716 meters, 30 disposals, 10 marks, and 8 intercepts. James H gained 564 meters on a 29 disposal day. Andrew Brayshaw, 29 as well. Seven tackles at 516 meters. His tackling helped keep Fremantle in it for much of this game when their kicking let them down. And I hadn't really seen that defensive side of his game a lot, so great to see that from the beginning. Jager O'Meara kicked 2-1 from 21 disposals, and both those goals came late to really draw Frio back into it. Brendan Cox had a late goal, 20 disposals and 8 intercepts. Jordan Clark, 18 disposals and 11 intercepts. This fat group from Frio just tends to do their job, and it's the middle and forward group that have let them down thus far. That said... They also are just kind of piling up numbers largely because of some of the slow-moving kick-mark game they play in the back, which... Fair enough, but great if you're a fantasy owner. Fair enough. At the same time, they won enough one-on-ones that I was waiting for them to really be rewarded for that. And they weren't. One player who we didn't mention the stats, by the way, for either team, but I want to go back and talk about it for a second, is Ben Cunnington. We knew how much... He mattered to North from watching them the first couple seasons, but also how they rallied around him last year and what it meant for him to be able to be back at the end of the season. But we now really see again how he's a leader on the Oval, willing to go in and make the tough plays, get tough handballs off through tackles. He's becoming one of my favorite players to watch again. So that was the closest game of the round. The next game was anything but. Yeah. um... On to Sunday. And this is the one where I said we might just go with some of the stat lines. But and I think there are a couple things to mention here between Sydney and Hawthorne. The Amarty party was on. Yeah, Joel Amarty played great. You know, no Buddy Franklin, no Sam Reed. Not an issue. Amarty had four first half goals. He should be in the lineup pretty regularly even now. And when you get to next year, it's going to be, you know, without Buddy to deal with. Maybe. It should really be his time to shine. I think he should be pretty much in, you know, a lock into the lineup right now, unless he gives you like multiple weeks in a row where he's just invisible or if he can have some rough time as well, certainly because he's a more versatile player on the ground than Pete Adams. And I think that's the other tough part is that is trying to fit him in again, you know, once Buddy's back in. But I think Marty will need to see more AFL level time this year because He's out of contract, and if you want to convince him to stay, that's a clear way to do it. 
he might be auditioning for all the other 17 clubs right now. Logan McDonald had a career day with five goals himself. So those two can really both be part of the post-buddy solution if they aren't in that already. I really like how McDonald plays. Very fluid. You saw the Swans do some of that overlapping handball stuff and just kick Hawthorne's ass. The 34-2 third quarter really drove the point home. At that point, it was 89-21. to Ambassador Caroline Kennedy was at this game, and I'm disappointed she didn't get to see a closer one. At one point, the lead was all the way up to 96. Hawks got the last two goals. They were celebrating that on bounce. Sydney Sweeney was in attendance at this game. She's an actress who's become really popular. Three Euphoria, I believe. And, you know, she went to a Red Sox game last year throughout the first pitch. They gave up 28 runs. This was, like, the exact opposite of that. Jaron Duran did not, like, stand there for a ball to land 30 feet behind him. Oh, that was, yeah, that was that game. Yeah, that was that game. Yeah, they, they gave up 28 runs. Swan, 17-16-118 to Hawthorne, 4-13-37. Honestly, we don't really need to say much more about this one. It was just so easy for the Swans to get passages going. You think back to last year when the Swans made that comeback in Launceston and Part of it's that Hawthorne is so eager to to go forward and have big numbers go back that way that it leaves them really exposed out the back. But Hawthorne were also having a difficult time with kicks coming out of the defensive 50, and Sam Frost did not improve from his prior game, really. His first two weeks of this season have been really bad, like to the, to the point that I would consider dropping him for round three. I will say Blake Hardwick was one of the few good defenders. He deserves some credit as it's like, I don't have a good analogy for this. He fits in that spot that have him, but he also swung forward again in the second half. Like, if there's some musician or band that largely sucks, but has, like, one decent album, this is that one decent album? Or, or like, the one good song off an album? Yeah. I feel like that's a better example. Like, like a one-hit wonder for a reason. Or, like, there are... There are good bands with bad albums that I'm sure you could make this example out of. Like, it's like Cyanide, the one good song off of Death Magnetic. I was going to say something about St. Anger. Hang on, now I got to check the St. Anger track list. I think the real complaint with Death Magnetic was the compression. Yeah, I can't really think of any here that were that good. That's the thing. Yeah, I guess. Death Magnetic was much better on later listens once they fixed the compression. As for the Swans, Callum Mills is really good at everything, and... As obnoxious as he can be, Tom Papley was a really fun interview and just seems like an intelligent and entertaining and engaging person. And I wonder if Fox Footy will end up having him be the go-to boundary rider in New South Wales once he retires. I would not be opposed to that. I mean, it would mean less lynchy. Hopefully at some point Alistair ends up doing it in Melbourne because then we get a lot more of him. I, I have a feeling he's going to stick in Queensland. He's a Queenslander through and through at this point. Mills had a strong game, the two goals and 28 disposals. Luke Parker, a goal from 27. Ollie Florent had 25 and looked very in tune with things. Jake Lloyd with 24. And Tom Papley kicked 2-3 from 17 disposals, but had nine marks, and we will definitely be talking about one of them. Nate Hill. I want to see him matched up with Braden Maynard because I feel like they're kind of the same person in that they're both really cool off the field, but dicks on it. Exactly. 
I can totally see that. They, they kind of deserve each other in that sense. For Hawthorne, obviously not many good numbers considering their performance, but Will Day, 26 disposals and 7 clearances. Jai Newcomb behind in 25 disposals. James Sicily, 25 disposals. Dylan Moore, a goal, a behind, 23 disposals and 8 marks. And Lachlan Bramble, 22 disposals. He gained 518 meters. I feel like we gave that game more time than it deserved still. Also, what do you think about the Hawthorne jumpers? They looked fine. Some people were saying they looked a little too purple. I didn't think so. Yeah. I just thought it was like, you could tell right away it's Hawthorne. Yeah. Which is the most important thing with any uniform is you have to be able to tell what team it is that's wearing it. I must say, I think the better, less usual class jumper this past round was Port wearing the white against Collingwood. I'm still an advocate for Port having a teal clash for the men like they do the women, but they looked sharp. At least their uniforms did. Yeah. Their play style, on the other hand. Forgot to mention that, but it looked clean. I, I liked it way more than the gray. While that Sydney fest in multiple ways was going on, Essendon and Gold Coast got underway. The Suns were looking for their first ever win against Essendon in Victoria, and they stayed right with them for three plus quarters which honestly is an outcome I should have expected. I just wasn't sure if the Suns were going to be able to shake off how poor their round one against the Swans was, but they were able to do so, even though Mabior Chol was omitted, and I really questioned that decision at first. Yeah, that did not end up being the lineup decision that was the issue. The issue ended up being not including Caleb Graham again. Graham may not be their most talented defender, but he's the most important for their defensive structure. Everyone else is able to fit into their role around him. Charlie Ballard, who didn't have a great game himself, Sam Collins, the list goes on. I do want to say, this was just a very entertaining game. Like, the back-and-forth nature of it. This is the sort of game that you could show someone who's never watched footy before, and they'd be very entertained, even if you're not showing them two of the better teams in the competition. I mean, we don't know about Essendon yet, and I really hope they put together a third straight shitty performance next week, which I hate to say because I want the Suns to be good, but I sure don't want them to be good against Geelong. It's like, for them to come out with an awful performance round one and a bad defensive performance, kind of like the old Suns teams, where it's like, yeah, they got some guys who do something offensively, but the defense is just bad and offers no resistance. It's just, it feels like they plateau, which sucked. The Suns got the first couple goals, and they looked like the team who could build up and move more patiently, though ultimately it wasn't patience that really decided this game. But at least the Suns start off a whole lot better because that certainly wasn't how things worked last week. It took Essendon a bit to get into the game, but a combination of going back to four for these three players, Andrew McGrath, Sam Durham and Dylan Shield really brought them into it. McGrath has been a really stable presence for them ever since the full-time switch during halfback, and that's something that has stuck with Brad Scott. Durham often comes back to support there. Really a full oval kind of player, often good for clean handballs and setups on the wings. And Shield got meaningful touches as well. He combined that with an active game from Mason Redmond, and you can understand why the Bombers rebounded and Shield ended up kicking a bouncer on the quarter-time siren for the Bars to take the lead. It still ended up going back and forth for 
the next two quarters. But I have thought from there that Essendon were the better team, at least. Did you get that sense as well, Ethan? I mean, I thought it was pretty even, pretty back and forth. Gold Coast went up 14 in the third on Jared Witt's goal to cap off an 18-0 run. It was a Ben King goal, then Braden Fiorini, and then Witt's. But yeah, Witt's did something other than a hit out. Yeah, I've been more impressed with his play lately. A more meaningful intercept, Mark. Even though I said, you know, he's mostly just a guy to win hit outs, maybe he's not just a big brute. Uh, Essendon took the lead... Early in the fourth quarter, teams were even at 72 after three. And then Will Setterfield, who had a phenomenal game, set up Jai Menzie. Then Zach Merritt with a big crossfield kick to Massimo D'Ambrosio, who set up Kyle Langford's fifth goal. That was a career high for Langford. And D'Ambrosio was a late in after Sam Wiedemann was ruled out during the week because of a toe injury. We both identified Langford as being crucial to Essendon's success last year. I think you had it first, but Essendon were 3-10 and ten when Langford was out and 4-5 and five with him. Really, you could essentially bump that up to 3-11 and 4-4 and and four and four because of how quickly he got injured in the first round last year against Geelong. Yeah, he was playing further forward than I was used to, but he did quite well at it. The other thing that I really noticed from this game... The umpire was not good. It evened out, but it was not good. Like, there was one in particular where Levi Caswell had the most obvious push that he got away with, but there were a whole lot of bad calls both ways. I'm glad it didn't end up as the story of the game, but other than David Roden's warm, comforting smile, this was not a well-umpired game. Also, Caswell, he's really big, but his only strategy seems to be just push people. I never noticed what a big guy he is, though. I mean, he's like, maybe it's because you see him oftentimes near Wits or Ben King or Chol, and that mitigates the effect of his height. You know, some people are tall. Some people are just big people. It's like their entire body is larger. And it's not, you know, that they necessarily have bigger muscles or more fat on them. It's just like his legs are bigger. I'm sure his toes are bigger. His hands are bigger. It's what, are you putting your best foot forward here too, Wes Welker? He's just a large person. It's like everyone knows a few of those people. He's just a large individual. And that's my biggest takeaway from this game. I know that's not really analytical or anything, but all right, yeah, it, it's a takeaway. You did also know that Matt Rowell was playing more freely, and that's something that I like as well. He was really boxed into an off-the-ball tackling role last year, and he's already getting a lot more of the share in here in 2023. As if he didn't have enough of them at home. I think it was 52? Something in the 50s. Yeah. The man likes falls. You said it, not me. But, like, Gold Coast had a chance to get it closer near the middle of the fourth quarter. Alex Sexton looked like he'd kicked a goal. No, he hadn't because Brandon Zerk Thatcher got it with his little finger. And that kind of killed off the Suns, honestly. They had one further goal from there. The score would not suggest Essendon played great team defense, but they had some good individual defensive efforts. Obviously, that play by Zerk Thatcher stood out, but Jordan Ridley had a whole bunch of them as well, and Redmond had a better defensive game as well. We know what he can do when he handles the ball. He loves running forward and kicking long goals, but, but he had a better actual defensive performance in this game, finished with 22 disposals, 9 intercepts, and 482 meters gained. 
He was not a perfect player. He had some noticeable negative plays, but the pluses outweighed the minuses. Certainly. Back to the Rowell thing for a sec. I like that he's able to play more freely, but is that part of why they've struggled defensively the last couple weeks is that they're letting him play more freely? I really hope the answer is no, because him getting to show off more of his abilities is good. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe the first game it was because they were without another one of their better wingers. But now that Lockie Weller's back in, amazing that he's already back less than 10 months after doing his ACL. But I'm not really sure. I think we're going to have to take a couple more games to really take stock of that. Please, Gold Coast, lay down and take it this week against Geelong. But then, like, put Caleb Graham in and play really hard and play good defense because I want you to be good. Just not this coming week. After that, we got though. Essendon's midfield were really productive in this game. Captain Zach Merritt had 31 disposals, 8 score involvements, and 547 meters gained. Darcy Parrish may get 3 votes, 30 disposals, 11 clearances, 10 score involvements, and 569 meters. I criticized him a lot in the earlier part of last year for having non-functional big stack games. This was a functional big stack game for sure. And you mentioned Will Setterfield already. A goal, 28 disposals, 11 score involvements, 9 tackles, and 620 meters. He has fit in really well and makes you wonder just what Brad Scott has seen in him that has worked so well there that didn't stick at Carlton. You know, I don't think he was a bad player at Carlton. This isn't like a, was he, was he just behind too many people, you think? Yeah, I don't think this is like a Will Brody type situation. I think it's just, yeah, he was just kind of a guy there. Definitely more than a guy right now in Essendon. I'm not going to knock Carlton for letting him go. I just think he was in a tough spot there because there are a lot of good midfielders at Carlson. I mentioned I really liked how Dylan Shield and Andrew McGrath got things going for the Ballers. Shield had two goals from 27 disposals and seven clearances. McGrath had 25 disposals, eight intercepts, and gained 499 meters. So unsatisfying to see like a 99 on the stat sheet in some way. The big team number that stands out, though. Essendon. 77.9% disposal efficiency. Sometimes that number is inflated by uncontested kick mark game, but this was not one of those cases. It's the connections that mattered stuck. It reflects on two things. Number one, Essendon moved the ball really well through the middle of the field. Two, Gold Coast did not do enough to defend them. Both of these things can be true, and in this case, both were true. For the Suns, Tuke Miller did Tuke Miller things. 31 disposals, 670 meters gained. Noah Anderson, two behinds, 25 disposals, eight score involvements, seven clearances, 574 meters gained. Lockie Weller looked totally up to speed with a behind, 24 disposals, 530 meters gained. The aforementioned Matt Rowell, 22 disposals, 10 clearances, six tackles. Jack Lukosius had a goal of behind 17 disposals and gained 503 meters, but the crew on first crack was digging into him for his lack of effort, and they showed a few sequences where he was just kind of standing there and then just kind of half-heartedly following after a guy that he was supposed to be covering. So, I think mean, he didn't seem to do anything wrong offensively, but his defense seemed to be lacking, and with the way the Suns are constructed, that, that can't happen. They need him to contribute defense. I also want to mention David Swallow before we move on. He didn't have huge possession numbers, but he did well when he had the chance, had the ball moving in the right areas and willing to fight in the difficult areas on defense as well. And he's also going to become the first Gold Coast Sun to play 200 games next round. 
one of the inaugural sons and has been there all the way with him. So with that Essendon win, new head coaches moved to 7-0. There was a chance for it to go to 8-0, and after the first quarter between the Eagles and the Giants, I was liking where things stood for it to continue, honestly. Yeah, the score only read 22-15 in favor of the Giants, but they had missed on some chances and just looked like they were having their way with the Eagles, and then things completely flipped. Yeah, a lot of defensive errors early for the Eagles. Shannon Hearn got caught in no man's land and left Toby Green all alone for the first goal. I know Tom Barris having a deliberate rush behind that led to a goal. Jeremy McGovern made it certain by conceding a 50 for dissent that made it a shot right at the goal square. So the usual suspects for the Eagles that have been so stable in the back let them down early. It was a couple guys in the midfield that really shone in the first quarter for the Eagles, those being Tim Kelly and Liam Ryan. Kelly was really attacking the ball early. I think his matchup against Stephen Cornelio motivated him to get that sort of involvement. And then Ryan was active as a mark and kick in the center square and going forward as well. And that's something that we've seen less of from him in general these past couple years. Just maybe a bit of a lack of investment, but also less of that fuller field play from him. At the start of the second quarter, the Eagles still looked a little slow, honestly, in both 50s. But that changed pretty quickly. Noah Long clearly got over first game nerves or whatever it was to have some good connections, especially with Jamie Cripps having son of his first two goals of a three-goal second quarter. Yeah, he looked really solid. Last week, you could tell it was his first game. Some guys, that first game, you know, the adrenaline takes over and they play great. Some guys, it's not so pretty. And you get a fairer evaluation in game two, and it was a much more positive evaluation. I liked what he showed. Even as the Eagles had this eight goals to two, second quarter was really good kicking for goal from Cripps and Jake Waterman. Why the fuck was Jake Waterman not in the main 22 to begin with? Even as a casual Eagles observer, I could have told you off of what I saw of them last year. He's one of their not just best 22, but like one of their best two or three forwards already. And he'd done some spot ruck work as well. He did some, Jack Darling did some. Just anything to minimize Billy J. Williams' impact on the game, please. Like, I, I'm looking forward for Jamison to hopefully convince the staff that he can get back in so that Williams can get relegated or for Harry Barnett to make his debut or anything at this point. I'm going to stick with this dislike of Billy J. Williams. It's, it, it's not going anywhere for a while. He's going to really need to convince me otherwise. I've tried watching him a bit more closely, and I see what's frustrating about him. He's just kind of big and not big enough to get away with a lot of boneheaded plays, but he makes a lot of them and doesn't have, like, the overwhelming skill to bail him out from it. Like, why is he going back in defense and trying to, to intercept Mark when Barris and McGovern are there as well? He got in their way once or twice. But even during this really strong second quarter, there was one thing that I kept thinking back to was that the Giants had still been getting a decent amount of chances. Jesse Ogan just hadn't been converting on his. He started with three behinds, and then his fourth kick for goal was short and marked by Jeremy McGovern in the goal square. He even gets one of those to go. We have a really different complexion to this first half and the rest of the game with it. But by the half, it had grown to a 31-point lead, 66-35 to 35 in the Eagles' favor. I was talking with one of my friends who was watching on from 
Arizona, and he was really impressed by what the Eagles were able to string together. I told him, it is not usually like that for this team. And I enjoyed that quarter for a lot of reasons, but also take it with a sizable number of grains of salt considering this is coming against GWS. And these are a couple of teams that we do still expect to be near the bottom of things this year. I do want to mention GWS's jerseys looked even more orange. Something about the lighting at Optus that was really cool. They truly are the orange team. At even third quarter, the Eagles started off well, but the Giants were able to get back into things. For a while, GWS's pressure had dipped. West Coast really answered that by by really filling that kind of void of pressure that the Giants had left. And they really created the game in the second and the first part of the third quarter rather than letting the game come to them as it did in the first. Giants were able to string together a couple good passages. Some of their younger pieces were involved. I really liked some of the effort out of the sub, Connor Stone. He kept the ball in play on the behind line and allowed Jesse Hogan to kick it. And that time, Hogan actually scored a goal, was his second. That's a five-point play there. James Peetling has a really good motor and was really eager to get involved. Just a couple missed connections for the Giants stopped them from really getting back into it in the third. And then in the fourth quarter, it just took too long for them to get scoring. The first goal of the quarter wasn't scored until there were eight minutes and 12 seconds left. And that was Jaden Hunt picking up from a Jermaine Jones kick deep into the 50. It made it a 36-point game. And I guess, honestly, that was the end of things, though it didn't really feel like it at the time especially when the Giants were able to get some center clearances after that, but there was no real moment between the eight-minute and the two-minute mark where any, you know, real closing of the door occurred. It just very, very slowly was pulled shut by the Giants themselves. I gotta say, I want that trip to Perth to be difficult, and hopefully this is a building block to that, although, you know, the crowd was never, like, super animated other than in reaction to one call it's it's nice to see the home crowd have something to be happy about although it was it wasn't like this super excited boiling over feeling i will say jermaine jones had maybe his best game as an eagle and he's had some good ones last year a lot of times he was one of the few bright spots yes i think other players working well around him helped him do so well in this one getting meaningful, deep kicks, and also establishing himself a bit more as a defender, which a lot of players needed to do in this one because, again, those typical strong back six guys weren't nearly as good in this one. Tom Barris started really poorly, as I mentioned. He was a negative for fantasy points for a lot of this one, ended on just 17. But Jones, Alex Witherden, and a few others helped make up for that. And while Jamie Cripps ended up with three goals and Jake Waterman actually ended up with four, I felt this as really a team win in a lot of ways. I felt like the team should have done a lot better than winning by 19. The score being Eagles 14-16-100, defeating the Giants 11-15-81. But enough players put enough things together to get the job done. At this point, I couldn't really ask for much more, considering how little winning we saw last year and how I'm still... Not super convinced about this group. I think they're still not fully committed to rebuilding because they're holding on to some of the older pieces for a bit too long. I'm glad Elijah Hewitt was able to make his debut as a sub. I'm glad Ruben Jinby had no longer getting into things more. I'm glad Oscar Allen's healthy. 
but I want to see another year or two where they keep really committing to giving this younger group time and they kind of push out that older group gently. Because unless they do that, I'm not really sure if this current football staff is looking to fully build the next generation. Jaden Hunt was a nice pickup. I don't know if he's going to be able to factor in when the team is going to be really strong again, considering that he's already 27, but he makes the team right now more competitive and watchable. And yeah, congrats to the Eagles on their largest win since round 18 of 2021. Admittedly, they have only had four wins now since then. Just remember, the Eagles were sitting in seventh after round 19 of 2021. They lost four straight to end the season. Does that sound familiar? I feel like if Cameron Mooney here, he would be laughing a lot. Stat lines of note for the Eagles. Tim Kelly led everyone with 32 disposals, gained 520 meters, and had an early goal. Was really surprised for him to kick that goal. Wasn't sure if he had that angle in him. Jim made it look pretty easy. Yeah. Jermaine Jones had 27 and gained 776 meters. He was that mover that you expect him to be while also having more and more accurate passes as well. Don Sheet had 26 disposals and 7 clearances. He's another one of those in-the-guts players that made the necessary gritty plays. There was one point where he had a handball while on the ground that got the Eagles going from center square. That was in the second quarter. That ended up being the Eagles' Sixth goal in a row from Oscar Allen. Considering how Jones and Kelly played, maybe you should give one of those four points to Geelong. I mean, could probably get more use out of him than the Eagles will this year. I think we're going to take what we can get, Ethan, but thanks. Guess you don't want Harley Reid enough. I think he's Hawthorne's for the taking if they want it. Jaden Hunt had two goals for 22 disposals at 566 meters. Shannon Hurd, 21 at 529 meters. But again, I just didn't, notice his impact as much. I noticed Jeremy McGovern because he was more the most stable out of that quarterback trio there. It's nice that they have guys that they can fall on when Tom Barris doesn't play very well, which is rare, but oh, very rare. One of those. Yeah, McGovern had 11 intercepts as part of a 21 disposal day. And again, for the goal scorers, Jamie Cripps had three and Jake Waterman had four. I'm so happy that Waterman is in the group and that he's making his case to stay like this. If only Adam Simpson will listen. I think West Coast only broke 100, what, once last year? That went over us. Sounds about right. So they've already broken 100 as many times as last year. They've got half the points that they got last year. Everything's coming up Millhouse. Adam Kingsley becomes the first new coach to lose a game. Or just not win a game. Stephen Canelio, 28 disposals, 9 clearances, 9 tackles. You made him your captain, right? Yeah, I did, which... It didn't work out quite as well as Laird would have, but it worked out well. Tom Green, 27 disposals, but broadcast team was not happy with his performance early on. Isaac Cumming, 23 disposals, 561 meters gained. Lockie Ash, 21 disposals, 656 meters gained. Really like his effort. Sam Taylor, 9 intercepts, and even as poorly as he kicked early on, Jesse Hogan still ended up kicking 3-4 off of 8 marks. Now some of the fun stuff to cap off the episode. We take a look at the nominees for Mark and Goal of the Week. I have a clear winner for one of these, and I'm still a bit divided on the other. All right, Mark of the Week. Your round one winner was obviously Harry Himmelberg. Round two, you've got Darcy Cameron getting some hide off and some separation from Scott Lysette just before the final siren. You've got Tom Papley going over 
teammate Chad Warner, and also kind of going over opponent Finn McGinnis. And you've got Nick Blakey using the knee to the back move to get some leverage on the far larger Lloyd Meek. The winner is pretty clear here. It's Papley, and it ain't close. Exactly. He ended up riding on Chad Warner's left shoulder with his right knee, and it was a good-looking mark, ended with a little bit of a dive, and got the right height, got the hang time. It's not going to beat Himmelberg's, but it was pretty damn good. It's definitely the mark of the week winner. I think more people are going to remember Papley's, though, because it was a bigger crowd and because it was the Swans. He got a nice pair of boots out of it. Yeah, I, nobody else really put up a fight in the Steel Blue competition. I mean, Cam Mooney went into his own archives and it wasn't really a good archive. The goal of the week, the round one winner was Chad Wingard. We thought it should have gone to Sam Switkowski because Wingard dropped the mark. Leading up to it, this round you've got Nick Dacos receiving an over-the-head handball from Stop Pendlebury. He arched his back to slip away from Zach Butters. Uh, hamburgers. And finishing from 42 out. Later in the same game, Bobby Hill got a tap from Jamie Elliott. Then Hill got rid of Darcy Bird-Jones, had a give-and-go with Elliott before snapping from 16 meters out. And then in the final game of the round, Jamie Cripps, for his third goal, got a set-play tap from Jack Darling off a of stoppage and kicked from 20 meters out at a 70-degree angle on the full while running toward the boundary. The fact that it was on the full is what really impressed me about this one. Usually see that as a dribbler or at least one bounce. Ethan, who's your winner? I'm going Dacos here, even though he was just the finisher, because the whole sequence was so cool. I judged goal of the week off of what was the one that when I saw it happen in real time, I was the most impressed by, and it was easily Dacos. I understand that, but I can't give it to Dacos because I put a lot of value in the individual goal, goal scorer's contribution to the play, and it was Scott Pendlebury who made the play for me, not Nick Dacos. I'm going with Bobby Hill on this one. He had to be a lot more inventive to make this one happen. It was a bit of a longer play. You could tell that he was really the one in charge. Yes, Jamie Elliott was involved, but Hill was the one who really made it happen. And I think it was also more energizing than Jamie Cripps. As much as I like Cripps as an Eagles fan and just liking how pure of a kick it was, I'm going with Bobby. The crowd reaction on Hills definitely drove it home. Oh, the other thing about the Dacos goal, though, he was celebrating it the moment it came off his foot, even though it was from, what, 40-plus meters, which I think that deserves some extra recognition. It was like a Steph Curry thing where he would, Curry sometimes just backpedals, starts going back the other way as soon as he hits a three. It's like that, where Nick's just like, I got this. So that's the one I'm going with. We already talked about the main character. It was the lights at the Gabba. We talked about the theme being power failures and also kind of not playing to the whistle. Happened a couple times. Just one more interesting note about this round. This is the third season in VFL-AFL history in which the reigning premiers have started 0-2 and the reigning wooden spooners have started 2-0. So kind of an upside-down start to things. I think we're going to see some stabilization over these next couple weeks, but it's fun to just see how wacky the ladder looks at this point. To see, for example, the Swans at nearly 233%. Or how about the 12th place team below 80%? Usually you gotta be like the bottom of three or four to be below 80%. That being the Lions at 79.3. That port march is just weighing them down at this point, but I think they'll have some things going for them next round, and they're gonna be starting next round. They're playing in the Thursday Nighter at Marvel Stadium. Josh Dunkley will be playing his first game against the Bulldogs. And so 
that is the game with which we'll start our next episode, our round three preview. As always, find us on Twitter at AmericansFunny. Find me at BenjaminHK01. Find me at Castle Media. Find Brian on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. Right now, you can find him on the bed next to me, cleaning himself. And I don't have a creative sign-off, so that's it. I mean, we already made all our power outage jokes between last episode and this one, so I'm just going to cut things off here. Maybe we can have a power image next week. <laughs> <laughs>